You're listening to the weekly podcast of the services at Stonegate Fellowship Church in Midland, Texas. For more information about Stonegate, visit StonegateFellowship.com. All right, let's uh, go ahead and get started. Good to be with you this morning. And uh, uh, it doesn't hurt to sometimes re-recommend things, but I don't think I've, I probably have. I've, in my life right now, everything that has occurred was just the other day, and so it could have been 10 years ago, it was just the other day, and I'm uh, early onset Alzheimer's, I think, in my life. But anyways, uh, for those of you who are in your car a lot, or if you are on a treadmill, you like to listen to your headphones, I picked this up on a whim one time when I was at the bookstore, and it is a, uh, it's a box of speeches, it's called Great Speeches of the 20th Century. And um, you, I checked on Amazon this morning. You can still get it. I was just going to see if it was even available. And you can tell how not new it is because it's CDs. Um, it's not videos. It is audios. And as you go through it, um, I'll just give you a for instance. Uh, you're going to hear uh, William Howard Taft's speech on the farmer and the Republican Party in 1908. Um, President Woodrow Wilson's address to the American Indians, President Franklin Roosevelt's inaugural address. Um, you're going to hear, it's an interesting speech, but well, anyways, I'll just keep going down. There's Eisenhower's Republican Convention address, John F. Kennedy and Vice President Nixon presidential debate. Um, let me go down here. Let's see. You'll hear General Black Jack Pershing address from France. You will hear King Edward VIII. And um, anyways, it's when he abdicates his uh, throne because of a woman, make you do crazy things. You'll hear uh, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain on his return from the Munich conference. You'll hear Chancellor Adolf Hitler's speech. You won't understand a word unless you uh, speak German, but uh, anyways, it's worth hearing. You'll hear Prime Minister Winston Churchill, his first radio address as Prime Minister. And you just keep going through this thing. I mean, it's just an amazing and uh, just amazing speeches. Um, I could keep going down. You're going to hear Babe Ruth's farewell address to baseball. Uh, some of you just now decided you're getting it now. You'll hear Casey Stingle address Congress. Uh, John Glenn, the first American to orbit Earth. You'll hear Martin Luther King's address to the civil rights marchers in Washington, D.C. Anyways, you can kind of get the gist of what I'm talking about. And it is just speech after speech after speech. And um, I've listened to it. If you want to know how long it lasts, if you're one of those who drives to Dallas or Fort Worth very often, this is your trip right here, okay? And you can just load it in and get after it. Again, it's called Great Speeches of the 20th Century. It's a four CD set, and they do have them at Amazon. At least they had one this morning. And uh, anyways, great, great uh thing to listen to. I've, I've tried to get my sons to listen to it, and they're like, nope. So anyways... And no, you can't borrow mine, so because uh, you won't give it back. Uh, two books that I've recommended all the time, again, to start the year off. Start With Why by Simon Sinek. If you've not read it, you should read Start With Why by Simon Sinek, S-I-N-E-K, Start With Why. And then another one that you need to make sure you've read at least four or five times is Good to Great by Jim Collins. If you have not read Good to Great by Jim Collins, um, well, I'm not going to make any remarks, but you should. So, you get something out of my pocket. I have one of those, we have a receptionist. I don't know if you guys have the receptionist that's not very concerned about your health. Does anybody have that receptionist? 
And she put sugar babies in the, in the uh, bowl this morning and, uh, or last night, and that's, that's bad for me. Let's pray. We'll go to Mark chapter 5 and chapter 6, and we will get started. Father, thanks for the day and for letting us wake up and be here, uh, whether by choice, by force, or what other reason. Thank you for the opportunity to be here, to freely uh, look into your word. I met with, you know, the guy that I met with yesterday and was humbled again to realize that uh, I have brothers in Christ who in the last three months have uh, been beheaded for preaching the gospel. And uh, now they have their wives and their children are um, somehow rejoicing that they have been chosen to suffer. And so we... um, we acknowledge this morning the triviality of leadership uh, in our country, and sometimes even real close to us. And so we acknowledge that you have uh, woken us this morning to a great calling in our lives of personal leadership and then leadership around us that is Christ-centered and gospel-driven. And so uh, this morning as we look into your word, would you open our eyes to see things that we need to see that you're working on in our lives for the benefit of others and for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So turn to Mark chapter 5. We'll be in Mark chapter 5 and 6. I want to ask you a couple of questions this morning, not really related to the text, but um, where's the Lord working in your life? Where is he pushing in on you? Where is he, uh, different analogies, where is he peeling back some, some layers and, and speaking into your life? Where, where are some issues that he's uh, grinding away at? Whatever, whatever analogy works for you. Um, one of the things that frustrates me about the Lord, he hasn't changed that. I don't think he cares. It frustrates me. But um, I sometimes, well, I love the fact the Lord works in my life. I very rarely like the people he chooses to work in my life. You ever notice that? Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'd be happy for him to work in my life if he just used somebody I like. Does that make sense? And, and you know, but he apparently doesn't care. And um, he's going to keep working in my life. Uh, yesterday he was teaching me, we're, we're reading the book of James and we were working on that message for this coming Sunday and was overwhelmed by the, the reality that we were talking about wisdom, how you can be right in everything you do but never be wise. You can be correct. You can be the most powerful person in business, in your home. Um, you can be the most powerful person in any endeavor. And you can be right and never be wise. Here's the sad part about that. Um, You can lead and not be wise. And then the person who suffers the most are the people who thought you were wise. And so it's it's a burden, and it ought to be a burden in our lives, uh, to continue to let the Lord just keep pushing away and pushing away at our lives. Because you do realize, and I hope you realize this, I've said it enough, I hope it's like a broken record. You would not be alive today if he wasn't pushing in on something in your life that he wants to use in someone else's life. He is not working in your life for your benefit alone, period. 
There is no work solely in your life so that when you die, it benefited only you. It's, it's not a motivational statement. It's a biblical statement. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's giving our lives. It's the second of the greatest commandment. It is, it is to love God and to love others. There is, and and the, the sobering reality is he could spend your entire life preparing you for a five-minute interaction with someone. He could be working in your life today for an acquaintance you have not made, um, for a statement, and actually, he could be working in your life for you to write a memo. Just let me, let me put it into your office environment, because you go, well, I'm not a public speaker. Literally, he could be working in your life for a memo that you have to write in the office that is written in such a way that someone reads it and somehow a memo is used by the Lord because of the words that come out of a wise heart. There, there is no other reason. I'm, I'm going to say it that boldly. There is no other reason for you drawing a breath than him working in you transformation for his glory and the benefit of somebody else. Whether that's your son or daughter, whether that's your wife, whether that's a family member, or someone you brush up against today. And so, sobering to know the Lord is constantly pushing in on us. There's never a moment he is not pushing in on me, and he's not pushing in on you. In Mark chapter 5, and I think I've been around you guys long enough that you know, I'm not very good at preaching just verse by verse by verse. Other guys on our staff are better at that. I sometimes gravitate to the bigger picture pretty quickly. And I was reading James chapter five and that happened to me again yesterday. And um, I, wanna, I wanna put my wrestling match with the Lord in front of you. It's in your notes. I'll help you fill in blanks. I did blanks again this time because I just got tired of you guys knowing where I was going. So anyways, verse 21 of chapter five. I'm gonna read some of this story and then stop for just a minute. Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side and a great crowd, again, a great crowd is all throughout the book of Mark, gathered about him and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing Jesus, he fell at the feet of Jesus and he implored him earnestly. As If you get the chance to keep reading through the book of Mark, I would um, encourage you to, to look at how many times the word implored or begged is used. And... Um, I'll get to that a little bit later. And so he fell at the feet of Jesus and he begged him and he said, my little daughter is at the point of death. Would you come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and she might live? And Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged all about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She'd heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. She said to herself, is what this means, she literally said to herself, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Every time I read this, uh, every single time I read this, I am astounded by the fact that the very power of Jesus was available at all times. It, without even him 
turning to her. It was just this, this and, and I'll get to this here in just a minute. Jesus perceived this had happened, who touched my garments. His disciples, always ever aware and alert of what's going on. Brilliant bunch of guys um, during the life of Jesus. And his disciples said to him, uh, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And the more I meditate on that verse, the more you, you just, you can't, I, I wonder what that conversation was like. I mean, just the facial expressions and how do you, you know, were they, well, Jesus, there's, a, there's just even no way to say that without coming across as, are you kidding me? You're the king of kings, wise up here. Verse 32, so he looked around to see who had done it. That's Jesus. And, and the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And I got to thinking about that and I had written some notes down to you guys about what moves the hand of God in prayer. And I trashed them because I wanted to back up and something stopped me here and I asked myself, what in the world is John do, or Mark doing with the miracles? What's he trying to teach us? And what checked me up a little bit is because sometimes we look at the miracles that Jesus does and it, we twist it into a theology of a Jesus who does miracles for me rather than understanding the purpose of miracles behind what Jesus can do. And don't get confused in that statement, but I, I backed up from it and I thought, is, what's happening here with the miraculous? What is Mark teaching us in the miraculous? What is, what is he saying? And I, and I actually kind of backed up and I'll show you what I did because you can do the same thing. And it's, I didn't, it doesn't take special tools or education. And I just went through every single chapter of uh, the book of Mark, and just took a piece of paper, and just, the, however you might want to do this, and I just wrote down every single miracle that was recorded in the book of Mark. It's only 14, you know, 16 chapter book. You can do this pretty quick, and, and I just wrote, for me, I have to do it in different colors, and, uh, and I just wrote down every single miracle. I wanted to see if there was a pattern. Is there something going on here? Is Mark doing a series of miracles here or a series of miracles there? Who's in front of him? Who's being involved in the miracle and all this different kind of stuff? These are questions you should ask yourself when you're reading the Bible. You should just start asking questions. What am I seeing? What's a pattern? And for some of you who've been believers for a long time and followers of Jesus, again, I would encourage you to slow your reading down and, and really look for this yourself. And I just began to watch and I began to watch and I began to watch. And, and I want to take you to your notes now and tell you a few things I picked up and where, where I kind of got checked up here. In your notes, I think I've got that the record of the miraculous is always a demonstration of the power of Jesus over the broken world. Um, the record of the miraculous, always a demonstration of the power of Jesus over the broken world. I, I don't think for a minute that either Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or even John are wanting to show us so much that Jesus can heal someone as much as he's trying to show us the power of Jesus over every facet of life. That he has, and I'll show you this, this quote here a little bit later, but, but Jesus came to restore what was lost, to restore and to redeem what was broken. And, and when you look at the rest of the notes, I'll show you some of the things that I saw. Five separate spiritual miracles. There were five separate spiritual miracles. What that means is he was either dealing with a demonic or what's called unclean spirits. Five separate times through the book of Mark, he's dealing with that issue. Whether, whether he is approached, and you saw that in chapter five, or someone brings their child to him and says, my child is inflicted by this demon. Can you do something about it? It takes on a little different turn around chapter eight when he talks about how, or chapter nine, that this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. So five different times he does a spiritual miracle. 10 miracles 
are over the physical brokenness and uncleanness of people. Ten of the miracles are over the physical brokenness and the uncleanness of people. For instance, uh, fever, and I didn't put these in your notes, but if this will help you, over fever, leprosy, blindness, uh, death, he raises a little girl from the dead, over someone's speech, he, he was someone who uh, couldn't speak. And so 10 different times, he does something in the realm of the physical. He seems to, in my observations, he seems to deal with blindness almost more than anything else. And I think that's interesting. It makes me ask the question, what is Mark trying to say? Why is he dealing with blindness? Why is, why, in fact, as, as the miracles taper off, one of the last miracles he does relates to blindness. And I, and I wonder sometimes, I'm just uh, surmising in front of you, I wonder if Mark is saying, I'm trying to show you that the world is blind to who he is. And I don't know if that's literary or if that's what he's doing, but at least 10 different times he does something physical. Five different times, there are five miracles over the natural world. Five miracles over the natural world. That's calming a storm, that's walking on water, that's multiplying bread and fish. And then when you get to, when you get to chapter eight, and I'll just kind of tell you what I discovered in my reading, and, uh, and, and one of the reasons I'm showing you this as well is because I really want to encourage you guys to trust your study before you... Um, go off to the bookstore and buy someone else's commentary about a book of the Bible. You know, you really should have read through a book of the Bible, you know, four, five, six, seven times before you go and get someone else's opinion about that. It's also why I would encourage you, don't go buy a new Bible today, but if you're using a quote-unquote study Bible that has a lot of notes on the bottom of it, don't make that more of your time with the Lord than the time in the scriptures. Do your own observation. Do your own study and then see what happens. But here, some more about the miracles, and this will not be in your notes. But when you get to chapter eight, verse 31 is the turning point of the book of chapter eight. Chapter eight, verse 31 is the turning point of the book. And the reason is, is because it's the first time that Jesus says, I'm going to go die. I'm gonna go give my life. Same thing happens in the book of Luke. I think it's chapter nine, verse 51. There's a turning point. And in Mark, that is a turning point. And there's even a turning point in the miracles as well because in chapter one, there's four miracles. And then you have one in chapter two, one in chapter three, one in chapter four. Then you have three miracles in chapter five. And then you have um, four separate occasions in chapter six. There's this ramping up and then it stops. And you have in chapter eight, the feeding of the 4,000, then a blind person. Chapter nine, the demonic is dealt with. Chapter 10, blind Bartimaeus, the only person he heals that we get a name with. And then some interesting things start happening in chapter 11. By chapter 11, the miraculous pretty much stops. Now there's one exception, in my opinion, and because some of you may have already caught it, and that is the transfiguration in chapter nine. I do not put the transfiguration in the category of the miracles I just listed for you. It was miraculous, but it was really an exposure of who he was for his little audience to see. It was really just... Mark giving us an opportunity to see who this Jesus is in all of his glory. And then, you know, Peter's like, let's build a house. Once again, Peter gets it wrong. And then the resurrection obviously is a miracle, but everything is driving towards the resurrection, which is the victory over death. But let me take you to another uh, little part of your notes. It says, the desperation and pursuit of faith is activating. Read that again. The desperation and the pursuit of faith is activating. I think I listed some scripture there for you to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. In chapter two, verse five, 
The desperation and pursuit of faith is activating. In chapter 2, verse 5, we read this story that many of you have heard before about a paralyzed man whose friends bring him to Jesus. And chapter 2, verse 4 says, When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Verse 5, And when Jesus saw their faith, there's this, this desperation. And I have a question for you here in a minute, but let me show you another example of what I'm talking about. Chapter 5, verse 28, I already read to you the story of this lady fighting through a crowd to just get to him. Then keep turning the page until you get to chapter 7. This is just a few instances that I pulled out for you to see. Chapter 7 is another interesting uh, point because it's, it's an outsider, so to speak. So to speak, She's not a Jew, and, and Jesus even has some harsh words for her. And I'm going to skip down for the sake of time, but verse 26 of chapter 7 says, The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him. There's that word again. And I, I circled begged all throughout the book in a different color of ink. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughters. And listen to what Jesus says. Let the little children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's an interesting statement. The more you look into it, we'll get there eventually, maybe next year. But anyways, verse 28. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Such humility in desperation before the Lord. And then he said to her, for this statement, you can go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in the bed and the demon gone. And I wrote two notes to myself that I want to give to you in this sense, because every, most of these miracles, some were done um, because, you know, the calming of the storm and the feeding of the 5,000, people had not come to him in desperation with the exception of the disciples being scared to death. But people came to him desperately wanting him to do something. And I wrote this in my notes. How is my life demonstrating dependence? How is my life demonstrating dependence and what am I desperate for the Lord to do? What in my life am I de- what in my life am I desperate for the Lord to do? I asked the church a question years ago or months ago. I said, "What in your life are you hanging it out there so far that if the Lord doesn't come through, you fail?" Now that is a to me that is a dangerous question because for some of us we're going to have to force desperation in our lives. I would say that's a small group in the room because all of us probably have a thing or issue that bother us. But what is it that I am so dependent on the Lord for that if he doesn't win, I lose? And it begs the next question. What am I willing to let go of or forsake so that I am dependent upon him? That's a huge deal because in my opinion, if there is no desperation in my life for Jesus, then what do I need him for? And where is he working in my life in the place that somebody can see him working? And is there enough humility in my life like the Syrophoenician lady who he kind of insults and she says, I'm a dog, but I'll eat what you leave under the table. Now, I'm not not telling you to to do something stupid. You know, don't go home and go, honey, you know what? We're going to sell the house, sell the cars, and away we go. And her go, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean that, but would you? Would you? When, when, a, when a missionary sits across the table from me yesterday and is trying to figure out how to deal with a family, maybe it's just fresh, 
And I think we also kind of need this freshness sometimes. And he had just returned from ministering to the family whose husband had lost, had been, had been de- decapitated. Uh, even not martyred him, but just what in my life has me desperately pursuing the Lord so he works? Is there anybody at work that you're so desperately wanting the Lord to, to change their life that you're pleading and begging the Lord for him to change that? But also realize, many times we are pleading and begging because we just want him to change something in our lives. But it's not a desperation for him to change something so other people's lives are changed. I don't know where you are, but what, where, what are you hanging out there so much? A bleeding woman who everybody after 12 or 13 years in the small community would have known who she was, trudges through the community in her uncleanness to get to him. Lepers cry out to him. And again, even as you look at the miracles, Jesus was very uh, intentional in that he would always touch the ones you weren't supposed to touch. What, what am I desperate for? The questions I just ask myself again, how is my life demonstrating dependence and where am I hanging it out there so that if he doesn't come through, if he won't come through, I lose? And then the other, the other note um, that you have in your, on the sheet in front of you is this. The miraculous will stop when belief stops. The miraculous will stop when belief stops. Chapter 6, astounding statement in chapter 6. If you find your way to verse 5... Jesus had gone to his hometown. The disciples are coming along with him. He's teaching on the Sabbath in the synagogue. Another phrase that's used a couple of times throughout the book of Mark is that he teaches in the Sabbath and people are astonished. Where did this man get these things? I'm in chapter six. Verse three, people around him say, isn't this just the carpenter kid, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And aren't those his sisters with us? They took offense at him. And Jesus said, you know, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his household. Verse five, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he, get this statement, I pause and let's let's read it. Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief and he stopped doing things. Now, Hold your place in Mark, turn back to Matthew, next door neighbor to the left, Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, very, pretty much similar story, but I want you to see what, what Matthew says in Matthew chapter 13. Find your way to verse 58, last verse of chapter 13, verse 58. Matthew 13, verse 58. Same story, Matthew just kind of gives us a little extra. Verse 58, and Jesus, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, big jump, keep your place in Mark, jump over to Hebrews, near the back of the Bible, Hebrews chapter three, Hebrews chapter three. Hebrews chapter three. We've looked at this before, but it's worth seeing again. Children of Israel's story, they went to the, edge of the promised land, didn't go in. The writer of Hebrews gives us a little more insight into that. Hebrews 3, verse 19. Hebrews 3, verse 19. So we see 
that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Hebrews 3, verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Their unbelief led to the disobedience of not walking into the promised land. So I back up from that and I, and I see a savior who wants to do more. But he says, apparently you don't want me to. And he leaves, he checks out. He says, I'll go somewhere else. And Matthew tells us he could have done more there, but he, nobody wanted it. They did not believe for it. The writer of Hebrews tells us the children of Israel disobeyed and did not walk into a miraculous promise in a moment of wonder because they did not believe. So I ask you the question again, what, what are you believing the Lord for? I asked myself this question. I wrote it this morning. I was just meditating over these notes again. Maybe these questions will work for you. Is my lack of belief stopping anything? Is, is my lack of belief stopping anything? And I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. But I, in my prayer today, I, I asked the Lord, however he's going to answer that, God, am I not believing enough for something? That, that your hand is being stopped what, what, am, what am I, am I missing belief in something? Am I keeping you from doing something because I'm not trusting you? But it will always go back to me having to answer the question, what am I trusting the Lord for? And, and what am I begging him for? And this will get into the issue of prayer when we eventually talk about that because some of us in this room say, yeah, but I prayed for something and he didn't do it. And that's the problem we have when we start looking at the miraculous, thinking that the miraculous is meant for my issue rather than realizing the miraculous is first meant to show us who Jesus is and what he can do for his glory first. And you, we, this is a broken record around here, but it is always his glory first, the benefit of others, and ultimately my joy. Understanding that for me to believe is oftentimes, and Jesus is going to talk about this a little bit later on when he bears down on what it means, it will mean the sacrifice of my life and giving my life away for a greater glory of God and the benefit of others. The miraculous stops when belief stops. I have a little paragraph for you there, and then we'll finish up. Mark is painting a portrait. He is describing for us the work of a savior to restore. He is not writing a story to tell us how to get every disease healed and every prayer of desire answered. He is writing so as to prove to us that Jesus has come to change the world, to change my world. I am um, beginning to wonder if growth in my life with Christ is demonstrated by an increasing, an increase in my prayer life for things that have nothing to do with me. I'm gonna say it again. I'm beginning to just believe that growth in my life is marked by a prayer life that has less and less to do with me. In fact, it's, if we talk about wisdom, my prayer life is being dominated by seeing things the way God wants me to see them Rarely about my direction, but always about perception of something else. When we get to the feeding of the 5,000, the activation of Jesus was he saw the people as sheep without a shepherd and he wanted to meet their need. And I think we will discover that our prayer life begins to change the more and more we press into him to have very little to do with what I want him to do in my life and more and more to do with partnering with what he is doing and identifying with what he is doing. I, I was struck the other day, I, I'm struck by um, 
prayer oftentimes among students and, um, and people who have become good Christians. Because good Christians know how to pray in public. You ever notice that? I mean, they, know, they got the words down, they know exactly what to say, and they, the, you know, special words we use, and, and how to, you know, you know and, and special introductories to the Lord, you know, our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and, and it just turns into like a mini sermon, and, um, and then, you know, we, uh, we, even, we even got it down to say, you know, whatever your will is, Father, we just pray for that, and, and we tra- pray for traveling mercies, whatever that is, and we pray for whatever, you know, we just, professional prayer, is an amazing thing that you don't see in scripture. And yet, perhaps it's more of a work of the spirit connecting our heart with, what's God, with, what, with what God is doing so that I am beseeching him on behalf of others rather than anything he could do for me. I don't know what that ramble will do for you. But anyways, I hope you'll meditate on the miraculous and um, see what the Lord is doing. I would encourage you today, as you go through the day, to perhaps practice prayer with your eyes wide open and your mind wide open and with a prayer that says something like this, show me where you're at work. Are you at work in this situation? You know, don't go around whispering to yourself because everybody think you're crazy. I mean, they might already think that, but it might confirm. But just, you know, in some way, um, I don't know, I'm just, I'm rambling. But when Jesus says, you know, the Pharisees pray in public to be seen by people and they use all these repetitions what is he saying to us? What is he saying to us? I mean, is it, and, and what is the culture saying? You know, I wrote in my notes, I'm, I, I was not going to use it, but I'll, I'll go ahead and use it. I'm, it may not be, I hope it's good. Not good, like cool. I, I mean, I just, I sometimes wonder if what needs to happen is we need no more Christians. We need followers and pursuers of Jesus. You know, I, I get so tired of people saying they're a Christian when that word's only used three times in the New Testament, two of which you can argue are pejorative. And in 1 Peter, you could argue, it's Peter telling you, by the way, you're suffering because the culture sees you as a Christian. And I wonder, you know, in my mind, I have this mantra that I'm wrestling with, no more Christians, just show me a follower of Jesus. I don't want them to know me as a Christian. I don't want them to describe me as a Christian. If anything, I want them to describe me as someone who's a little bit quirky towards Jesus. Because, you know, again, when you read through the book of Mark, almost every chapter, Jesus hacks off the religious establishment. Almost every chapter. So maybe we should just, maybe that's going to be our prayer. Lord, help us just to hack off Christians. So we'll go on. But anyways, you do with that what you want to do. You can tell I'm wrestling through the word. Chapter six, um, the story of John the Baptist. I hope you'll go back and read it. I want to fill in the blanks for you because some of you are the mind style that if we don't fill in these blanks, the day will be bad. So I want to make sure we get the blanks filled in. The rest of you will just, you'll just put your own words in. You don't care. So the story is of King Herod. Interesting, by the way, verse 14 of chapter six, when Mark calls him King Herod, uh, that was not his title. He wanted to be called king. History tells us he wanted to be called king, but the Roman government would not give him the title of king. And so it's interesting that Mark says King Herod. He's kind of jabbing at him, which is kind of funny, I think. And uh, so anyways, for whatever that's worth, apparently not much to you guys, but I thought it was cool. So verse 14, King, David, King Herod heard of it for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. 
That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he's Elijah. Others said he's a prophet. I'm going to read, skim a little bit, verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now the story. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John. This is John the Baptist. And bound him up in prison for the sake of Herodias. Uh, if, just to make it clear, it's Herodias, his sister-in-law. He had had an affair with his sister-in-law and married her. And John the Baptist, it says in verse 16 or 18, had been saying to Herod, you know, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Apparently, and we'll see this here in just a minute, apparently John had an audience with Herod often. Don't know how that came about or why that came about, but apparently he did. That's not me making that up. You can see here in verse 19, Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted him put to death, but she couldn't do anything about it. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and Herod kept John safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So it's kind of interesting that John had this audience with Herod, and in the midst of that audience had no problem telling him, you, you, you're not supposed to be married to your sister-in-law. Verse 21, an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a big party. Let me kind of read it quickly. Verse 22, uh, Herodias' daughter came, his niece, came in and danced, awkward, pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, which once again, if you ever thought, you know, the power of a woman's body over a man, it's right here. He's, re- he's going to give his kingdom away. He says, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give it to you half of my kingdom. And, and she went out and said to her mother, so what do you think? And she said, I want the head of John the Baptist. Now remember, God's running the show. And so she came in immediately with haste to the king and she said, I'm in verse 25, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was sorry about this, but because of his oath and his guests, in other words, because of his pride, he wanted to break his word to her. And so he had the executioner go get John's head, had him beheaded, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Portrait of a powerful man, letter A, John's life. His life was marked by clarity in his purpose and his path. There was no doubt. There was clarity in his purpose and in his path. Gentlemen, clarity in your purpose and your path is a lifelong pursuit. It's constantly in need of sharpening and refining. And um, I want to show you something. If you get do this quickly, turn to Matthew chapter 11. You've listened so well this morning. Thanks for putting up with my ramblings. Matthew chapter 11. I'll show you something about clarity in John's purpose. He'd been arrested already. Matthew's going to tell us the story a little differently. But I want you to see something about John I think is fascinating. Because I think we sometimes think we're going to get so mature in Jesus that we're never going to struggle or have questions. Here's the, for, the, the forerunner of Jesus. And um, verse 2 of chapter 11 says, When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, the Messiah, he must have already known it was not going to get any better, but he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, here's his question by the word of his disciples. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? He's in prison because of this. He's been in prison because of uh, uh, his testimony to Jesus and because he's told the truth to Herod. But he's clear in his purpose and his path, but, but in the midst of prison, he, he asks a question. And Jesus answers. Listen to his answer. 
Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, you go tell John what's happening, and it'll prove who I am. But even in prison, he, he, was, he wanted clarity that he was going to give his life away for this. Leave it in chapter 11, letter B under your notes. There was consistency in his life and in his message. Consistency in his life and message. Mark tells us that because he was consistent in his message to Herod. At no point, we're left with the thought that at no point did John prevaricate at all. He he, he didn't say, well, maybe we can make this work. He he was just consistent. He said, Herod is just wrong. And... um, Apparently, he said it in a way that Herod still would listen to him. That's an interesting lesson on how you communicate this. Consistent in his life and message. Gentlemen, all of us know what it's like in the last 24 hours to not be consistent. The trick of the enemy is to tell you you're a failure because of your inconsistency. The truth of the Lord Jesus is to repent and to walk in consistency until you're inconsistent again. And then you repent and you walk in consistency again. You realize the enemy's trick is to always try to tell you you're not a believer, you have failed, and he's quit you. Settle. That is his trick. If he can get you to settle, consistency is a battle. You don't establish consistency and then you keep going. You, you work to consistency every day. You work at it and you, you labor at it. Letter C, respectability in person, presence, and message. Let me say it again. Respectability in person, in presence, and in message. What I mean by that is he carried, there was something about his character that Herod was going to listen to him. And, um, and I'm going to leave it at that, except uh, you remember the story I told you about David when young David was recommended by one of Saul's people, the way he described him was he said, he is a man. He is a man of men and teaching. And, and somehow he just had this power and presence. For a guy that wore uh, camel's hair and ate locusts and honey, he had a respectability, his person, his presence, his message. For whatever that's worth, I, would, um, I don't think it's a, a faulty prayer to say, God, work in me in such a way that something about my presence causes curiosity about who you are. And also the opposite is true. God, work in me in such a way that there is no part of my presence that is distracting from who you are. There's no part of my presence that is distracting from who you are. Letter D, last one. Courage in the most demanding circumstance. Courage in the most demanding circumstance. Now, I told you to leave it at chapter 11. Here's why. I wanted you just to see verse 11 of chapter 11 of Matthew. I know we're studying Mark, but I want you to see this. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has been no one arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the man in Bible study who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Let me read that again. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one, the man, who is a men's Bible study, who would even consider himself the least in the kingdom of heaven, is greater than John. And the reason is because if you're a follower of Jesus, he lives within you. And he longs to do greater things in you than John could even have imagined or known. The struggle you have is a struggle he can defeat or win in your life today. 
What am I desperate for that he has to do that will show his glory to somebody else, meet someone else's need, and be for my ultimate joy? And that'll be miraculous. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Such a, a joy to look into your word and to have you challenge us. Um, help us to never be content with settling with what we think we know about you. And so in many ways, I would ask that you, you continue in our lives today to um, make us aware and to make us alert as to where we have settled or where we have stopped growing or stopped pushing for clarity or where we're inconsistent and perhaps even where our presence is a distraction to your work and we change, whether it's facial expressions or even, I don't know, work habits or whatever. And may we be courageous in demanding circumstances. May our faith be real and powerful and, and a conduit for your activity rather than um, a doorstop that keeps you from moving. And I thank you for the final reminder today that every man who walks out of here, though he does not have the title of John the Baptist, according to the confession and the words of your son, Jesus Christ, is greater in the kingdom of heaven and that you want to do something in this man's life today. We ask your blessing as each one of these men, as we've said many times, this room full of preachers. May they preach well. People will come to church Sunday because it's what people do. But they get to go to the world and they get to go preach. And I pray they would do that with heaviness and responsibility and maybe demonstrated in the deal they cut, the thing they do, the work they do, the work of their hands, their interactions. The gospel would be on full display by these men today. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day.